0: Mike, you just did an episode with one of the greats.
1: Yeah, it was awesome, but man, he dropped a lot of books I need to buy.
0: Lucky you have a discount code BLWF10 so you can get 10% off.
1: Welcome to Bad Law, Worst Facts. I am really, really lucky today because I have Uh, None other than David Ball, the man who wrote The Reptile Theory, the man who wrote Damages 3, the man who is co-authored on Damages Evolving, somehow said yes to coming on to this podcast. And I am super excited and super blessed. David, how are you doing today?
0: Well, I am super blessed as well because any chance I get to talk to people to help them do what I think is an impossible job because I can't do it. I'm a consultant, not a lawyer. If I were put in front of a jury and a judge, I'd be, uh, uh, what do they do to you when you're, when you're in enough contempt? I mean, I would have told the judge to go screw them. I can't keep control. So no, I'm in awe of what trial lawyers do. So I love being able to, you know, to help with it. But man, that's all I do. You folks are the ones that got to go do it. You got the hard job.
1: So tell me, I mean, look, I, it's, it's very rare that I get to speak to someone of, of, of what you have done, what you have accomplished for plaintiff attorneys across the nation. How did you, how did you come like get into this? Cause I mean, I know that you didn't do law school. I know no, you have some sort of theater background.
0: School. I wasn't in law school. I was a, uh, well, I, I have a, a spotted background. Um, uh, my, my initial training was a few years of very rigorous science and engineering until I decided I did not want to be an engineer. And I went to the dean and I said, this is, a, this is a, a, a pretty substantial engineering school, Rensselaer, which is where you went if you couldn't get into MIT, but it was the, way, it was the next place everybody went. And so I said to the dean, I, I didn't think I wanted to be an engineer. And he said, well, David, nobody's saying you have to be an it. What do you want to do? I said, I want to be a physicist. And the dean says, David Ball, there are no B-physicists, (laughs) minus says the dean. I hung around there for a while and then decided I would go meander through a bunch of... uh, Vietnam was going on at the time. I managed to stay in school long enough to get a PhD, by which time the drafts had ended. So I have what's called the the Vietnam PhD, a PhD (laughs) none of us would have had had we not felt necessary to stay in school. But my main profession before I got involved in, in trial consulting was in professional theater. And that was primarily who I was for a couple of decades. And I, was, I had a very lucky career. There are no good careers in theater. You're either lucky or you're not. I mean, you have to be good, but there's a lot more people who are good than manage to have good careers. Um, and then I just got tired of doing it. And I decided I had enough money not to have to do anything if I didn't want to, other than if I could just figure out a way to earn maybe a couple of years' salary, and then I was careful I could eke out of life for the next 30 or 40 years. <laughs> so to keep sane, um, I was off in the woods writing a novel, and to keep sane, because theater, you're around people all the time, I had this need to be around people. And they don't let you hang around, you know, schoolyards and stuff. To, you know, <laughs> I so I started hanging around the next best thing, which was courthouses. And I started looking at what attorneys were doing in front of juries. And astonished that if you walk into your typical courtroom, um the jurors looked like they were dead. I mean, they were as bored as I'd ever said, and for a theater person to see this, it's a horrifying sight. But you also know that they're not hearing a word anybody's saying. So I began to understand why they say, when you jurors hear only 20% of what's said. Well, when you do cases that lead them to be that bored. Anyway, I started watching a lot of these things, saying, why don't they do these things that we know how to do in the theater? And somebody said, "Why don't you write an article for lawyers about it, et, cetera, et cetera and that sort of?" Then somebody called and said, "Come help in this case." I said, "No, I have no idea what you people do. You will know, we'll learn it." So I, I, I went off and took a couple of law school courses that a very kindly and brilliant um, trial ad teacher at the University of North Carolina let me sit in on, and things just sort of progressed from there. I fell in love with this because it uses. Everything I'd known from theater about the true parts of theater, not the not the makeup stuff, but how do you get at the truth of a play, the truth of what's going on? How do you maintain tension? How do you get people to see things from the perspective that you want them to see things through? That built into really, I guess what you call playwriting and directing is the analogy where where it was really creating strategies in specific cases. Uh, and then I realized nobody was paying any attention to teaching lawyers how to get money for their clients. Everything out there was how to win liability and everybody was uncomfortable asking for money. So people were doing these great cases and then, and folks uh, let me talk to you about money. And they were very uncomfortable (laughs) with it. Uh, Right where they should have, you know, not been throwing it in people's faces, but I realized they didn't know how to do it. And that was the first, it wasn't the first book. The first book was uh, on how to use methods from the theater and trial. Uh, And that it was helping people a lot to come out of their shells and be who they were, and all that stuff. How to talk to a group of people, for example. and a lot of strategy, but the, the damage is one, the first volume of that was, there was nothing out there like it, which is sort of intentional in know, way, right? Something that there's already 20 things out there, but there were not many resources. Most of the seminars and webinars with a few startling exceptions were just not very good, not very useful. Certainly had very little to do with strategy kind of continue the lessons of, here's how you lay a foundation. Well, probably you don't need to go to a seminar to learn to lay a foundation, because it's in about 47 books, and it might even be in your notes from law school. There are a few exceptions. A guy named Eric Oliver, who I became very close friends with all year, was doing strategy stuff, and a couple of other people, but it was very rare. Now, it's amazing. You've got a publisher like Trial Guides that's got a shelf of dozens of great books uh, written by really, really good people, a couple of real duds in there, but they're going to be, and some of them that are really just ripoffs of what's already in other books. But by and large, 95% of those books, not just from Trial Guides, but Trial Guides is the one that specialized in them for plaintiff's attorneys. So the resources for people getting started are probably overwhelming. And, of course, we're in an era now where people don't read, so a lot of the books that are out there, nobody's reading, which for a trial lawyer is just plain stupid. Uh, younger trial <laughs> lawyers don't read books. Uh, they're, they're not buying books. They're not borrowing books. So they're going to seminars and getting sort of the skimming off the top general stuff, but they're not getting into the real meaty stuff. So you got a writer like Rick Friedman who can't, open his computer to write a paragraph without writing something every trial lawyer needs to read. Uh, he's got, a, you know, eight, ten books out there that I consider mandatory, uh, a really mandatory. I would not hire a lawyer who didn't know Friedman's work. And at first, I didn't know anything. I mean, I'd work for any side, any time. And then I realized what a bunch of crap the defense <laughs> side of civil cases is, and how horrifyingly ghastly racist unfair and power imbalanced in criminal cases people are when they're up against the state that the whole system had gone bad and so you know doing doing good works at the same time you're getting a great deal of satisfaction out of doing something is kind of a heaven of a kind of job so that's i spent a lot of time studying uh the neurosciences especially since 2000 have really come into their own uh, when it comes to how people, especially people in small groups like juries, how people make decisions. And it's very different from people, uh, what anyone ever thought, including all the psychologists, including all the trial lawyers. I don't think most trial lawyers have caught up with much of that and very few of them have read even the fundamental books there. But again, you're in the business of making up other people's minds. And I don't know that there's a harder job. There's jobs that require more strength, lifting things. But what is trickier than reaching into somebody else's brain to make up their mind? And that was the real goal of, of what I was doing. So it never came out to be a bag of tricks. It's not, hey, do this trick and you'll be fine. Sure, there's plenty of tricks. But it's how do we know, how do we know that the human brain works at making decisions. And making decisions is one of the brain's primary functions. It's how we survived. It's how we evolved because we had a brain that was learning to make decisions. And so how do we get into that process? So it's not what I think the case should be, or should be decided. It's what those six or 12 or eight or whatever people sitting there. Well, that's theater. You're asking how I started. It's the same thing. If I'm going to make my living in theater or screenwriting or directing or whatever, any of those forms, I need to have a pretty good grasp on what it is that moves an audience, that interests an audience, that they want to watch. All right, it's easy. I know teenage boys like jokes about farts and sex. That's not too hard. But if you want to do some serious stuff... Uh, not that there's anything wrong with those movies. American Graffiti remains one of my favorite movies. But if you're going to get into stuff where you're you're handling true serious things, real things, uh, and be more than just a one shot wonder, uh, you need to you need to know what. You know what is going on in the heads of those people. They're not coming there because you're their kid. The jurors are not your mother. So the, the, that that that. That similarity with theater, where you, where the work you are doing, the, so, the result of it resides solely in the jurors' heads. But there are books that are not written for lawyers that are, oh, oh I would strongly suggest, with all due modesty, Damage is Evolving, as an extremely important thing to read. Yeah. It's got the best thinking from three of the other best people I know in the business. That's Nick and Courtney Crowley. And my partner, Artemis Malikpour. And, and and I can probably comfortably say they're all smarter than me. Uh, they're, they're pretty pretty amazing, it, it's, especially in terms of what they managed to get into this book. And there's a couple of guest writers in there have done a nice job, too. But there's also a couple of books that people need to read if they're going to do personal injury law that are very useful. One is called Black Box Thinking. It's not written for lawyers. Black Box Thinking, and the other is called The Checklist Manifesto. Anyone in the business of making up other people's minds, that is of being a trial lawyer, must read the next two books. The first one, read them in this order. The first one is called Incognito. It's a very easy read by David Eagleman, Incognito. This is about decision-making, and you need it. This is not abstract, intellectual, academic stuff. And once you've read that, it'll be much easier to read the other book, which is called Thinking, Fast and Slow. Thinking, comma, fast and slow. And that author's name is Kahneman, K-A-H-N-E-M-A-N-N. Or maybe just one N, Kahneman. And somebody else, Dversky. Well, you just look up the title, you'll find it.
1: And I will put that in the show notes for our viewers who are probably already looking yeah. back and trying to repeat well, this right Well, anybody who has any questions can also
0: just email me and you have my email. So I'm perfectly happy to answer any short questions about anything ever. Um, but, you know, if you really want to do the best that you can do, the time to start saturating yourself with these things is now. As soon as you start doing cases, and there's only one other thing that I think is really important and really lacking in the background of most new trial attorneys, you ask most new trial attorneys how many trials they have watched from beginning to end. How does anyone dare do a case when they've seen two, one, none, seven, you know it's so easy now and the problem is is people get their job people get their jobs and now they're too busy to go watch trials and they certainly were too busy during law school to go watch trials and they weren't even interested in trials when they were in high school so they're going in to do one of the hardest jobs in the world and they've never even seen it done you know can you play a can you be a basketball player when you've never seen a basketball game can you can you <laughs> I don't I don't get it. I don't get where people think they can do that. And it shows. It shows in their work, and it makes everybody nervous as hell. You sit and watch a bunch of trials, beginning to end, everything. Keep an eye on the jury. Keep an eye on everything. And you'll know whether you're doing okay and whether you're doing the right thing when you get up to do it. The reason people are so nervous now when they're starting out, they've never seen anybody or they haven't seen people do it enough. And it doesn't need to be the geniuses that you watch. If you can, that's great. But if you can't, if you're just watching the average lawyer in the business, which, by the way, is pretty good quality. If you're just going to watch the average lawyer in the business, that's fine. But do it. Don't try to do something you've never experienced.
1: So tell me a little bit about um, kind of the, if if you could, for a young attorney, some of the do's and don'ts that you would tell a young attorney. just. You know, if they've watched a few trials and now they're they've been tasked, just like I was when I when I first started. Of here's the oh, trial, good luck. Which is one way
0: <laughs> I learned to ride a bike that way, and I really got killed. Yeah. Um, it's hard to say because it depends on the situation you're in. The best way to learn how to do trials is to spend the first few years of your career doing trials. So go work for a public defender office. Yeah. Uh, I suppose you could work for the prosecution, but I spent all my criminal time working against the prosecution. I don't want to help them out by telling good people to go do it, but yeah, do it. Get the experience. And in fact, with a little bit of research, you can find the public defender's offices that really do a decent job training because they know they're going to get a lot of new lawyers and they've got resources that an individual firm rarely has. And that is the greatest way in the world to learn how to do trials to get some training. I taught years ago uh, for the New Orleans, just one session of the New, York, uh, New Orleans Public Defender. I was astonished, uh, the top students from all the top law schools would fight to become public defenders there because they knew that the people who ran the training program there uh, were really trying to get in good people. Well, there's other places like that. That's one way to do it. But if you are going into your first trials you don't have that much control over the conditions you're working under. Not everybody has the luxury of saying, okay, I'm going to be a public defender. You take a job because you've got some school loans to pay back, and you're in an office where uh, you know, you're you going to be pushing paper for a while and watching some trial, and then they'll let you start to take part. So you don't have that great advantage. Uh, you should look around for some of the good training programs that, that can help. And ask around, uh, uh, what are the places that NETA, the National Institute for Trial Advocacy, has got good programs in teaching the basics. Engaging you up on your feet and uh, experience with the basics. And at its worst, they do a good job. I've rarely seen, I used to do a lot of their programs years ago, so I would see lots of other people who were in those programs. And I've rarely seen bad people teaching there. ATLA, not ATLA anymore, uh, AJA, runs great, they have a program called The Essentials, I believe, it's probably still called that, if not, find out, which is superb for people who are getting started, as is, believe it or not, what they call The Ultimate. And the reason is, the time to learn strategy is when you're still learning the basic techniques. It's not that, okay, first I'll learn how to lay a good foundation, and then I'll learn the techniques of... That. First I'll learn exactly what all the rules of evidence are, and then I'll learn the, the, the strategies for great cross-examination. The best way to do that, and I learned this when I was training professional actors, is the techniques and the, and the skill, the strategy, the good part, uh, are best done together. So, Anita, uh, AJA... American Justice Association. But when you go in to do your first cases, ask yourself some fundamental case of questions. Before I ask a question in jury selection, ask yourself, why do I want to know the answer to that question? Am I asking that question just because everybody I know says you should ask that question? Well, that, so... Um, Ask yourself, why do I want to know the kinds of things? What does that have to do with how somebody might respond to my case? Make that explicit about every question you ask. And if you don't know the answer, ask around. People like me, I'm sure people like you, most people who have been in the business any amount of time or at all decent will help. Especially when you just go and say, why would I ask this kind of question? And ask a few people. There's no one person who has all the answers or is always right. So that's the, you know, what, why am I asking this question? What am I going to do with the information from this answer? And then know the fundamentals. So you learn the mechanics of doing it. Get those, Get those, so you're comfortable with it. You don't want anything, You any choice for what you do to be ruled by something you're not comfortable with the mechanics of doing it? Uh, is it too complicated to try to get a piece of evidence in after the time that the evidence was all supposed to have been uh, submitted or whatever, or demonstrative evidence, for example? Right. Uh, don't, don't be deterred by that. Learn how to do it and be comfortable doing it, and don't hesitate asking. It's not, what do I want to say? The damn thing is not about you is what do I want in the jurors' heads before I sit down? For example, you must undermine the strong points of the state's case. You have to, because otherwise the state is gonna cut up, not the state, the defense, if you're doing civil cases. The other side, forgive me, I've just been in the middle of writing a criminal defense book. But you have to undermine what the other side is gonna say about your case. Because otherwise they're gonna get up in their opening. And they're gonna say, well, what Mr. Plains' attorney didn't tell you, and I don't blame him for not telling you. And even if they don't say that, when they do explain that undermining point, the jurors are gonna feel like you hid it from them. The other really important point about all these books and all these seminars, don't just read them, they're workbooks. Every time you start a new case, the first time you read the book, go through it and highlight carefully, whichever book it is. Same thing with your notes from seminars. Highlight. It doesn't have to be the right things. You might miss something. Nonetheless, highlight. So that gets you more familiar with the book. Then with every new case, you take your three or four favorite books and your two or three or four favorite notes from seminars, and you lock yourself in a room. Don't let anybody interrupt. You spend a day leafing through to see what is there that will apply to this case. Because you know very well when you went to law school, yeah. you've, you don't have in your head 95% of what you learned in law school. It's just not there anymore. Why isn't it there anymore? Because you haven't used it. You haven't used it. You understood it when it was told yeah. you. You crammed it down your throat uh, well enough to pass your bar exam. But come on, you don't know that now. Well, you want to refresh your mind on all that strategy stuff, because otherwise you lose most of it. So you can read all these books in the world and go to all the seminars. It doesn't mean you've retained any of it. But now it's like when you listen to a seminar, listen with a particular case in mind, but then take those notes and the books and you leaf through them and you'll see the riches in those books. Obviously, I'm not just talking about mine. Uh, I hope I'm not anyway. there's a lot of good stuff out there. Even if you don't look at mine, there's riches in those books. And this is a very important thing at any point in a career, but especially when you're getting started, don't feel panicky. I've got to do all these things. You can't, nobody can do it all at once. Any great athlete learns the fundamentals one step at a time, but they don't ever stop training. And the problem with lawyers is after people have done a few cases, the only training they do is they sit and listen to a seminar occasionally because they have to. And that's it. And you wonder why the basketball players are better than the lawyers. There's no rules saying what you're legally required to do on cross. It's up to what you think you need to do to get the juror to side with your case. Yeah. Develop a list. Uh, some people call it a hit list. I don't like words like that or be a warrior or stuff like that because it makes you more aggressive and it can turn you nasty and disrespectful in trial. And jurors hate that. They hate lawyers who are disrespectful of people on the stand during cross. It's the single greatest complaint we get. It can get so bad they start hoping you will lose the case. I hope this guy doesn't doesn't succeed here. And once they start hoping that you're cooked, don't do
1: it. That's something I have a little bit of an issue with is that I just get so worked up, especially with a defense expert or a witness. I know that's lying, but um, it's just, it's really frustrating to me on on some of my
0: larger cases that... Exercise a bit of empathy and it'll help. The empathy is that person is either doing their job the way they think they're supposed to do it, or they are in a position of protecting themselves they are doing what people do in those situations. My job is not road rage. Road rage does not help me with that. That anger hurts you. Is one of the reasons I want people to read the way of the trial lawyer. It removes a lot of that. It's one of the ways. Another way, and I never would have said this 10 or 15 years ago, but and don't don't laugh at this uh, because people who do laugh at it and then try it are finding it enormously useful. Learn to do some meditation 10 minutes a day. And it makes you a whole different person. For example, go to American uh, AJA, American Associate AJA, AJA, whatever ATLA whatever used to be. American Justice Association. Yeah. A-A-J, A-A-J. A-A-J. Yeah, I A-A-J. said AJA before. Um, yeah and you can sign up there if you can't find where to do that, let me know and I'll send you the email uh, a wonderful human being in Texas named Lisa Blue uh, every Monday morning runs a brief uh, its 40 minutes if that uh, meditation session that lawyers from all over the nation sign up to do and these are hard nosed not mushy not fuzzy, none of that crap These are just working, practical lawyers find this of enormous use. And it helps when you get stuck in that macho thing of getting angry. You're taking something personally, and that's what leads to road rage. And maybe road rage is justified sometimes, I don't know. It never helps you in trial. (laughs) It turns you into a bully on cross because you're the one with all the power. And it makes jurors feel when they've seen you being peevish or disrespectful or sarcastic or angry or any of those negative things, anything other than professional, polite and respectable, not respectable, but respectful. They think that you are exercising a technique you learned in law school to get people to say things that you want them to say, whether the people believe these things or not. We know this is true. I've been doing interviews with jurors, ex-jurors, for 30 years. That's one of the most common comments. I, I, would, I mentioned this to you before when we were talking. The, the jurors will say, you know what? I, I watched the guy cross-examine. He was superb at it. What a great lawyer. But if he cross-examined me, I, I admit that I shot Kennedy. I hadn't been born yet, but I admit, I would have shot, that was me. And they're, they're right. They don't trust the information you're eliciting. And along the way, they think you're a jerk. Nobody likes a bully. You don't, it comes from you want dignity and they're daring to contradict me and that gets me mad. Trust me, that doesn't help you. And it tells the jurors that, yes, do you need to believe in your client and fight passionately for your client? Yes, but not when it can be misinterpreted as bullying other people for the sake of your client. Let the jury get mad. Show the jury things about this person or things about this case that will get them mad. Let them be the ones who get mad. The old advice used to be, wait till the jury get mad and then you can express your own anger. No, you can't. You get the same negative response from jurors, even though that was the fundamental. I used to teach that until I learned from jurors that that was still a mistake. I watched F. Lee Bailey who was one of the masters of cross-examination a generation or two ago. And his cross-examinations are still legion. The only one better is in my cousin, Vinny. Yeah. Um, but uh, I watched Jeff <laughs> Lee Bailey uh, do superb cross-examination work. And he did not get irritated or annoyed for a very long time. And then I had jurors say to me after I interviewed them after a trial that was here in North Carolina, they say they loved him, they were so with him until he got nasty to that witness. And that was when I really realized there was yeah. something going on here. But these are these are very fundamental, basic things that you, you once you learn and you discipline yourself, you're okay with when you get to closing. Again, the question is always, what do I want in their heads? What do I want them to think about this case? What do I need to put there? A couple of other things. Do not speak to the jury in legalese. Do not ever use a legal phrase or a legal term, or indeed any kind of technical term, scientific term, forensic term, whatever. Talk plain English. If you've got an expert who keeps referring to the hippocampus, if you've got whatever the term, it, translate for the jurors immediately and do it every time they use the term, because jurors don't le- learn vocabulary. Don't use abbreviations. If you've got a case that involves something with the FDA, they might recognize FDA because they've heard that a bunch of times, but they don't know what the NAFTL is. I don't either. I just made that up. Uh, but, but, you know, it's, it's alphabet <laughs> soup. Um Keep in mind when you've done discovery that 95% of what you learn in discovery does not belong in trial. I know you've worked your butt off to get all that stuff and probably paid some money to get all that stuff you've got. And you've got, you know, gigunda piles of things. But nobody wants to hear all that. Your job is to find out what's in there that you need to win the case. Not, here's all this crap i found, folks, I'm going to dump it on you, and now you figure out what's important in there. Another very important thing to remember right from the beginning, never say anything to a jury that they cannot understand as you say it. I'll show you what I mean. But remember the rule. If they cannot understand the words as they're coming out of my mouth, don't say those words. For example, never get up and say, folks, they took her blood pressure. It was 160 over 115. And everybody under the age of 40 has never had to worry about their blood pressure is going to say, yeah, so what's says that good or bad? They have no idea. <laughs> it's, it's nonsense. Or you use a term. Or you, uh, what I meant by technical languages, they didn't find out that she had hypertension. Find out her blood pressure was too low. Or whatever. These people are not studying to be doctors. They don't give a damn what hypertension means. Just say what it means. Then you later, because so if you hear the word hypertension during trial, that's what they're talking about. And then remind them each time. Just remember, they are not stupid. Collectively, any juror is smarter than you will ever be. However, they're not in your line of work. And you're probably stupid in their line of work. I don't care what their line of work is. You don't know how to make a hamburger at McDonald's unless you've done it. Treat them the way you'd want to be treated in doing something new. So, I mean, there's other fundamental things to keep in mind, but the primary thing is Your focus is first the jurors. But the bigger picture is, why am I doing this? To pay the rent? You know, uh, for my ego? To keep from being humiliated? Come to terms with that natural human part of you. And that's why I say one of the first books to read that is not about technique is Rick Friedman's Way of the Trial Lawyer. Rick is probably the wisest person I know writing about trials, whether it's technique or this, who I am, what is my ethos. Uh, When I say wise, I I mean that in the very literal sense. It's there to take advantage of. And the people who came into this business 20 years ago, 25 years ago, did not have people like Rick or Keith Mitnick or any of the other really good people out there got trouble with proximate cause and making sure jurors understand it, read the domino theory. Um, All sorts of things that you've got the tremendous advantage of. Remember who you are, but first decide who you are. And that's where that Rick Friedman book comes in. You get that right foundation of going of technique, strategy, and who you are. And you are going to be a hell of a lot better in a very short time. And certainly you will develop as the years go on so that you'll eclipse the people who taught you.
1: Well, uh, David, I really appreciate you coming on. It was, it was fantastic. Um, (laughs) uh, You're, I think you did one with Michael Cowan, a few, you did two with him. I think there was one like a, a couple years back and I think I have that on replay like three times. I actually think I downloaded my phone to replay it so many times. So every time you, you drop knowledge on us in the PI industry, it's fantastic. So I really do appreciate you taking that one. Up.
0: I don't like being able to do them because like I say, I can't do the job you do. I really can't do the job you do.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much.